name has so much power. It's the same power as it did when he first called me at eight years old. His name become common. Such a powerful name. Just put it on your lips right now. Just say the name of Jesus. It's the name that saved you. It's the name that delivered you. Healed you. Gave you a purpose and a new life. Who continually intercedes for us at the right hand of God. Father, such a wonderful name of Jesus. tonight. We're thankful. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for you, God. We're so thankful. so far. Uh, keep the heart and the mind you have right now and open yourself to uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, man, sorry, I'm just a little, I don't know, that last song wrecked me a little bit. Uh, thanks guys, I appreciate you all so much. Oh man, how about you guys glad to be here tonight? Well, I'm excited. Um, if you guys want to send your kids back, you're welcome to do that. And if you want to have them stay with you, you can keep them here too. There's a blessing for them. So, um, yeah, so I tried to warn Brother Dow. Uh, <laughs> when people come here, they usually get attacked a little bit. And, and uh, yeah, praise God. He's still faithful, amen. So he's 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 here for for us and for the Lord, and he's pushing through. He had really hurt his back yesterday, and so um, thankful he could still be here with us. And so uh, we're thankful that you're persevering and with us. And uh, I don't know him very well, um, but I met him years ago at a at a conference, and he was 
sharing his heart, and it just really impacted me, and I uh, thought about it over the years, and and we have a mutual mentor, which is Dr. Gladstone. You guys know him, and uh, and so I reached out to him not too long ago, and I guess the timing was right, and the Lord was in it, and and um, and so now here he is, his beautiful family, his wife Anna, and uh, so you guys make him feel welcome, and uh, come on, bro, and share the word with us. If you have a Bible, I'm just going to, I'll ask you to open, uh, let's open to Hebrews chapter 5 together. Um, As you do that, uh, I just want to say we're really honored to be here. It's our first time to Arkansas. Uh, I say we because there bees a lot of us. Uh, It's myself and my wife, who I think she was just taking uh, our three-year-old back there where the rest of the kids are going to be. Um, but me and Anna and then our five children are here. Yeah. Who said yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. We're going to obey these scriptures, right? Like, be fruitful. <laughs> um, yeah. So we have our five kids with us. It's always a joy when we get to be together. Uh, we say all the time we are better together. Yeah. Um, family is amazing. Uh, There is an assault on the family unit. Um, The enemy despises family because family looks like God, right? As a matter of fact, God is the reference point for family for us. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. He is a divine community. He in himself is family. Uh, And so what we are able to peer into or gaze into as we behold him Uh, As he is, we then long to see manifested uh, in the earth. So much so that Paul would say in Ephesians 5, it's a mystery, right? Family becomes a mystery when it's infused with God's spirit. Because it's not not cultural, it's not fleshly, it's not just worldly or preferential. Um, But so we're we're really honored to be here. Thank you so much, uh, Chad and Tahila, for inviting us. Um, You know, people are always like, man, we're so glad you came and I usually respond with, like, we don't show up places we're not invited. Uh, so it's both sides, right? It would be kind of weird, like, hey, we're here. Um, but no, so we're, we're really excited to be here. Um, there are some things that I have in my heart over the course of the weekend. Um, I know we have tonight and tomorrow and then Sunday again. And even as I've been trying to ready myself as best as possible, um, fasting and praying. There are just some things that I, that I continue to feel my attention drawn to, and I felt the Lord really put a, an emphasis on. Uh, and we're going to look at those things out of Hebrews 5 here in just a moment. Um, as he was sharing yesterday morning at 7 a.m., I had something kind of like a, I don't want to say a freak accident, I mean, but it was completely irregular for me. Uh, I was bending over to pick up a 20-pound dumbbell, and it was like lightning shot through my lower back. Um, I mean, yeah, like lightning shot through my lower back. I ended up spending a half a day at the doctor's office. He's like, you have sprained ligaments, um, muscle spasms, you know, possible herniated discs, all this crazy stuff. I'm like, man, what are you even talking about? Like, Like, this is not the plan, you know, like... 
Like, no, like this is not the way that it's going to go. Um, it's the way that it went, but uh, it's not the way that it's going to go. Uh, then later on, uh, last night, like 8, 9 o'clock, we get an email from Delta. Your flights have been delayed like several hours. Then we actually got to the airport. Then we got delayed at the airport. Then we got on the plane. Then we got delayed on the plane. Um, it was just like such an effort to try and get here. Um, and for those of us who are not looking for a way out, right, that wasn't like my Gideon fleece to be like, okay, well, like, you know, I guess we'll just have to figure another one out. Like, I'm kicking it at the house over these next days. Like, this is my reason not to go. No, no, I'm not looking for a way out. We're looking for a way in. Um, and where there's resistance, man, I really believe that the Lord wants to do something significant over these days. And so my family and I are excited to be here. Um, we're not trying to get out of the way. We're trying to get in the way. Um, I tell our team all the time, um, if the Lord's going to touch anybody, I want him to touch me. Right? If the Lord's going to touch anybody, I want him to touch me. Um, so even as we start at the onset here, just if you would, let's just, would you put your hand on your chest or maybe over your heart? I'm just going to pray something super simple for you. Um, it's going to sound really simple, but man, if the Lord does it, it, it could produce a reckoning in each one of our lives. Um, Lord, I'm asking you because you know every story, you know every journey. You know every sense of destiny, Lord, the dream that drives us, the purpose. Lord, you have beautifully revealed yourself to us, and you have powerfully pulled us into yourself. Each one of us, we've tasted, we've seen, and we know that you're good. And I'm asking you, Lord, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you, in a fresh way, unveil the face of this beautiful man to our hearts once again? We want to see Jesus high and lifted up, exalted above every other, every other lover, every other persuasion, every other attraction and distraction, um, above the world's current and all of the things that it tries to incentivize us with. I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, tonight, show us the face of this man once again and give us grace to behold him. And then give us grace to respond in the only way that makes sense, and that is to give him everything. Lord, we want to be all yours. All yours. No competition, no rivals. No resistance, no wrestling. Have your way in us tonight, King Jesus, because we know what you want. You want us. And give us grace that we might be more yours than we already thought we were. You can have us, Jesus. Yeah, would you just say that with me tonight? Would you say, you can have me, Jesus? <laughs> oh, my yeah, you can have me, Jesus. Anything that you want from me, Lord, I want you to have it. Touch my heart tonight, I pray. Give me grace to love you the way that you deserve to be loved. There is nobody like you, Lord. Oh, there is nobody like you, Jesus. Hmm. Touch the hearts of these beautiful people that have gathered tonight. Touch their hearts, Lord, I pray. In 
Jesus' name. I really feel as if the Lord wants to invite us into a deeper measure of the experience of his love to free us from all of the resistance at times that gets built up in our hearts over time. Um, because for as much as we probably would not want to say it directly or even admit to it this way, there is still at times a wrestling that happens in our hearts. My way and his way. Um, but the delight of sons, and I would say daughters too, because I don't just want to make it some male exclusive, uh, because even though I don't mean that, I know that it could sound that way. So I don't want to reference only sons, but there's at times resistance. But it's the delight, it's the anthem, it's the heart cry. It's the eruption of a heart that has been joyfully conquered by the love of God. To say, I delight to do your will. Right? This is Jesus. I just didn't come to do my own thing. I know that potentially I could do anything I want to do. I have power. As a matter of fact, I have more power than you even realize. I have all power. I wield all power. And the Father has entrusted me to wield all power because he knows that it is my joy to surrender. It is my delight to do his will. I didn't come to do my own thing. I came to do his thing. And therefore, I can be trusted. <laughs> Jesus can be trusted as a man to wield the fullness of God, all power, all glory, all authority. Why? Because no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. This is my desire. I have food that you know not of. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God. I'm not after just everything and anything, potentials and all of that stuff, but I want to know exactly what my father's asking for, and I want to lay my life down doing the thing that I know that he wants. And at times when I'm wrestling, at times when I'm struggling, at times where in my flesh there's this, this angst over his leadership, uh, because we find a man in Matthew 26 on his face in a garden, and he's praying because he is wrestling with his father's leadership. Man, sometimes you know what he wants, and it's, and it's difficult to comprehend. Um, sometimes you know what he wants, and maybe at times you don't want it as much as you know he wants it. Right? Anybody who's sitting here who's going to tell me that you always want what God wants, you're not telling the truth. Right? And if Jesus as a man is on his face in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, the place of crushing, the olive press. If you've been to Israel, then you recognize how beautiful at the foothill of the Mount Zion it actually is. But Jesus is in the Garden in Matthew 26. I haven't forgot about Hebrews 5 for anybody who thinks. Jesus is in the Garden in Matthew 26. And he is battling to the point where he is bleeding out of his face. Man, have you ever wrestled in a season where you knew the will of God and it required much time in prayer in order for the Spirit to joyfully conquer you to where you were willing to surrender to what you know that God wanted to where you could do it out of delight and not a sense of duty? Because without the place of Gethsemane, we do much out of duty, and we miss out on the delight that the Spirit provides. 
We do much out of religious obligation. We do much out of intellect, out of know-how. We do much out of the exterior facades, the imagery, all of the, uh, the, the externals that we know how to do, where we know how to do things behaviorally that have never actually touched us in an intimate place of fellowship. We do it because we recognize we might have to. We're trying to avoid some sort of penalty. Right? We don't want to be Jonah right, and end up way off in the distance running from what we know the will of God is and creating trouble for others. And so we have this sense of I have to do this. But Jesus is in the garden in Matthew 26 and he's praying and he's bleeding out on behalf of what he knows his father wants. And there are just some incredibly difficult moments and seasons to walk things out the way you know God wants them. And this is what Hebrews chapter 5 references. It says, with loud cries and tears, he lifted his voice to the one that he knew was able to save him. I was reminded as I was praying earlier this week, um, two years ago, I actually broke my back. Uh, that sounds really extreme. It was really extreme. But uh, two years ago, as a matter of fact, in a couple of days, it'll be two years. Again, doing something that I considered to be average, not that, really not even that wild. The activity that I was in did not seem to have enough of an effect to produce the outcome that I was experiencing. But nevertheless, I'm in my garage. My whole garage is done like a CrossFit gym. I used to compete in all of these things. My wife and I used to train and, and whatnot. Um, that's not the point. The point was I was in my garage doing a workout with some friends, almost like an empty bar set of back squats. I get down to the bottom. I can't squat now, but I get down to the bottom and feel like something unhooks in my lower back. And I was like, okay. So I look at my wife and I was like, hey, listen, um, you guys keep warming up. I'm going to, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to try to fix this. So I'm like dead hanging from a pull-up bar trying to like stretch my back out. I'm foam rolling, trying to like loosen it up. At this point, I'm turning pale. I'm now sweating. I'm super nauseous. I'm crawling on the gym floor, like my garage floor. I get up and I try to walk it off. Now I'm like penguin waddling, can't really walk. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to skip the whole workout. And my wife is like, well, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't really know what's wrong, but I'm going to pop some ibuprofen. I'm going to grab my heating pad and I'm going to just smash this for a couple of days and get back on with life right? Because that's, that's what we do. We make things happen. A couple hours go by. Um, it, it was actually the, the day in which we were announcing that we were going to host a holy assembly, a convocation in Milwaukee. This would have been two years ago, right before all of the crazy stuff popped off in Milwaukee over the summer, where Milwaukee was once again national news and had not been so since the days of Jeffrey Dahmer two plus decades ago where the Milwaukee monster put Milwaukee on national news. So this was the day that we were announcing we were going to Milwaukee, not in response to things that were happening, but in a preliminary way, because we didn't know what was going to go on there, but the Lord did. And it was the day that I was having a book delivered fasting, another fasting book that I had written. So anyways, a significant day. And on this day, I'm now a few hours after injuring my back that morning, and I'm sitting in a chair about to meet with our team, and I am completely beside myself in pain. And Anna says to me, I've seen you hurting before, but you're in bad shape. You have to promise me you're going to go get this checked out. 
And I was like, oh, like, come on. I mean, it's, it's no big deal. Like, listen, I've pulled muscles before. I've done all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, whatever. So I was like, all right, you know what? I'll go. So I go to the doctor's office. I'm laying on the table. He starts looking at my back. He's like, hey, man, um, you got a lot of fluid in your back. He's like, I don't, I don't want to, like, say anything that's going to startle you or be shocking or what have you. He's like, let's get some x-rays done, and then we'll meet on the backside of the x-rays. So we get these x-rays done, and I'm sitting in the room, and he comes in, and he puts two images up on the screen, and he's like, this is what a spine is supposed to look like. This is what yours looks like. And he's like, do you see what's going on down here around the L5 region? And I just started crying. And he's like, you have severely fractured your L5. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand. I said, there's no way. Because what I was doing should not have produced the consequence. Like, this doesn't make sense to me. And he's like, I, I understand. He's like, however, I would like to bargain with you and ask you if you would see things from a different perspective because I'm going to prescribe you a little bit of a different process than what would consider to be normal. And I was like, okay, sure, go ahead. I'll at least hear you out. He's like, I'm going to ask you to give me two weeks. I was like, two weeks? He's like, no pain pills, no shots. I was like, whoa, like, I don't like the way that this is starting, man. Like, I am in excruciating pain. Like this was the most humbling pain I had ever known in my life. And he was like, let me, let me just, he's like, I know that sounds bad, but let me just, let me help you to see things from my perspective. He's like, I'm a believer. I was like, okay, like praise God, man. He's like, and at 17 years old, I broke my neck on the soccer field. Okay, bro. Like, that's not helping. <laughs> like, awesome, man. And he's like, let me just say it to you this way. He said, sometimes God uses our most broken moments to frame in our future. He said, at 17 years old, I was playing Olympic-level soccer. He said, for the Puerto Rico national team. He's like, and at 17 years old, on the soccer field, I broke my neck. He's like, breaking my neck on the soccer field at 17 years old made me a multimillionaire. He's like, I got into uh, organic type health and wanted to know how to help people. And it's actually what put me into medical school because I wanted to be better and I wanted a more holistic way to go about it because I understand like all the pills and all the shots and all of this and all of that. He's like, so that broken moment when it seemed as if my future had been shattered on the soccer field and it was beyond my ability to comprehend what it was that God could have been doing in order to allow such a devastating circumstance to happen to me, he said, that broken moment actually framed in my future. And he's like, so I'm going to ask you to go about it a little differently than what most would prescribe. He said, I'm asking you to give me two weeks. He's like, because this is what I need you to do. He said, no shots and no pills. He's like, because I could send you right up to ortho. They could pump you with cortisone. They could give you all the pills. But what's going to happen is it's going to numb you from you being able to feel the pain that I want you to feel in this process. 
He said, because the shots and the pills are a synthetic way or a man-made way to deal with pain. He said, it's a man-made way to deal with pain. He said, and if I send you for the shots and I send you for the pills, what's going to happen inevitably is you're going to get home and because you've chosen a way to cope or to buffer the pain that I want you to feel in this process, you are going to think that you are doing better than you actually are. Because the way that you've chosen to handle the pain is going to make you feel like you can make moves that you shouldn't actually be making. He said, but this is what I need. He said, I need you to feel the pain because the pain is going to let you know where the boundaries are. He said, I see it all the time. He said, people leave and they get all pumped up full of the shots. They get all pumped up full of the pills and they go home. And it's only a matter of time before I see them again. He said, sometimes it's a couple of weeks later, sometimes it's months later, but they come back and now rather than just having the isolated issue that they had, now they have compound issues because they left thinking that they were better than they actually were. And the way that they chose to deal with their pain actually did not help in their wholeness, but it deceived them into making them think that they were more healed than they actually were. And he said, this is what I need for you if you're willing to go this way. He said, I need you to actually feel this so that you can really heal from this. He said, I need you to feel it so that you can actually heal from it. He said, and so no shots, no pills. He's like, because when you get home and you go to do something and it hurts, you're going to tell yourself, ow, that hurts. And you're not going to do that. He's like, that's what I need you to do. He's like, I need you to know where the pain is so that you don't overstep the boundaries in a process of healing and end up with compound interest on issues because you chose a synthetic way or a man-made way to cope with pain. He said, because then what happens is people spend a lifetime having to either do one of two things. They either have to modify their lifestyle in order to compensate for issues that never actually healed well. They have to modify their life so that they can alter, so that they can compensate, so that they can protect things that should have healed but aren't really healed nor as whole as they should be. And he said, this is what I need you to do. He said, I need you to feel it so that you can heal from it. And I said, okay, man, like, I get it. All right. So I come home from the doctor and walk in the house, staggering. I had someone helping me. They walked me in the house. And sit down on the couch, and Anna's like, what did he say? And I just broke down crying. And I was like, man, this is not the plan. Like, I got a whole lot going on. Like, and she said, well, this, this might not be the best time to tell you, but we're pregnant. And I was like, What? <laughs> I mean... What? In one day, right? But, but this, is, this is 
this is the spirit life, right? It is, I don't want to say the Christian life, but it is the spirit life. At all times, there are things that we could complain about or things that we could celebrate. I don't believe in this roller coaster Christianity stuff, ups and downs. It's more like a parallel. At all times, there is suffering and celebration. At all times, there are certain things that if we wanted to, we could complain. And if we wanted to, we could celebrate. Right? Paul says, I've learned how to do both in Philippians 4. He's like, I'm not speaking to you out of want as if I have some weird need. He's like, but I've learned. I've learned in a variety of seasons. I've been in seasons where there's mountaintop highs, abundance, breakthrough, more than enough, over and above and exceedingly beyond. He's like, I've been there. But then I've also been in seasons where there's been sorrow and tears and suffering and trials and tribulations. And there's been fasting and weeping. He's like, but I've learned something. He's like, I've learned something throughout the journey, and this is what I've learned, is that my devotion no longer demands a certain context. He said, for I can do all things, and I get it. This is like bumper sticker, you know, Bible verses, right, memes and all that stuff. What Paul is actually saying is that I can be anywhere and do anything, and God can trust me because I know that God is in me. And I've realized that it's his love and his power and his influence that's in me, which is actually my hope of glory. It's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. It's not our strength. It's not our social network. It's not our financial stature. It's not our career ambitions. It's not our prop. It's none of those things. It's God in you working in you to accomplish his agenda in you. And it's him. And it's from him for him, back to him. It's all Jesus, and that's why it's actually good news. It's good news because it's about him, and it's not about us. It wouldn't be good news if it was about me because I know what I'm giving him to work with. I know what I'm giving him to work with. And at times, as weak and as broken as my reach for God is, it's him. And that's why there's real hope and there's real glory is because God is able to sustain me in seasons where the difficulty wants to derail my devotion to him. It's all him. Peter, the enemy desires to sift you, Luke 22. The enemy wants to expose you. He wants to touch you in the most vulnerable place in the conversation that if he exposes it, he's hoping that it would buckle you to the place where you'd never be able to recover. That's what the enemy is after in your life. The enemy's not coming after fringe stuff. He's not coming after like things that don't necessarily matter that much to you. He wants to hit you where it actually hurts in a hope to where you would walk away from willingly the God that has revealed himself to you. And you could almost see it from Peter's perspective, right? Like this is the prophetic word you don't want to get. You know what I mean? Like if you're in a meeting, if you're somewhere, if somebody's like, hey, bro, like, could we meet? Like, man, I was fast. I was on a fast, and I really feel like God gave me a word for you. And like you get together, and all of a sudden, but this isn't just somebody. This is Jesus. And he's like, the enemy wants to sift you. The enemy wants to sift you. He wants to expose you. He believes that there is a place 
in the conversation of your life and your devotion to me that if he touches it the right way would actually bring you to the point where you were willing to walk away from me. And you could almost see it from Peter's side like, okay, well, but you're Jesus. So you told him no, right? You told him no, right? You, you didn't tell him no? And he's like, I'm praying for you that after you've fallen, I don't like the way this is sounding, that after you've fallen, I'm praying for you that you're going to rise and that you're going to be a strength to your brothers. Because Peter, you're going to have to understand that it's not about who you think you are to me, but it's who I am to you that matters. Two chapters before, Peter is the one who says, even if everyone else denies you, I'm your guy. If everyone else walks away from you, I'm the one you can count on. If everyone else denies you, betrays you, if others can't seem to hang, you can count on me. And Jesus says, Peter, 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 I'm going to give you 24 hours. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Because Peter's going to have to learn that it's not about who he thinks he is to Jesus. John 6 says that many of the disciples decided to walk away from him after he was teaching things that were beyond their ability to receive. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is in response to miracles. It says that after the feeding of the multitude, John 6 opens this way, after the feeding of the multitude, that many, the multitude gathered around, thousands of people are now flocking to Jesus, and he uses the moment where there's a crowd to reveal who the covenant people are. <laughs> Miracles and multitudes, Jesus has a purpose. He's trying to turn crowds into covenant lovers. It's not the moment to, like, maximize the moment. Well, don't offend anybody, bro, because we're trying to build a brand. Like, like make sure that you say things that people are going to like, and if anybody wants to walk, make sure that you can correct it real quick because we need the numbers. No, no, no. Jesus ain't worried about the numbers. He understands that though he is for everybody, not everybody is going to respond the same way. And he's taking crowds to find out from crowds to covenant lovers. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Many of them intentionally decide they're going to walk away. And he looks at those who are actually staying. And he's like, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter says, we've left all of it to follow you because we've come to believe that you have the words of eternal life. And Jesus responds to him and says, but always you must know that it's I who have chosen you first. God's power is able to sustain us in seasons of difficulty where all of our ability to fuel our devotion on our own is not getting the job done. And if you've been through difficult seasons, seasons of sorrow, tragedy, hardship, all types of suffering, weeping, even as it says in Hebrews 5, with loud cries and tears, he was lifting his voice. Matthew 26 is the reference, bleeding out, wrestling with his father's leadership in a difficult season. 
where he knew what it was that God was asking him for, but as a man in his flesh was having a hard time actually yielding to walk it out the way that he knew his father was asking him to. There are days, seasons, times where God's leadership over our life is going to be difficult for us to actually bear, and it will require much time in the place of prayer for the Spirit to prevail in our hearts to where we can actually surrender to God out of delight and not out of a religious sense of duty and a fear of penalty if we're not owning the thing that we know God is asking us for. And my wife was like, well, hey, we're pregnant. And I was like, well, broken back, new baby. Ten days later, we lost the baby. Let, let, me, let me say this. I, I get this. This isn't like that super energetic, like, Christian pep rally service. Um, but much of our walk with God is going to be formed in the trenches of real life. Where we are going to have to make a decision for ourselves, being accountable to the revelation of God that each one of us have in our hearts. The intimate knowledge of God for ourselves. Because there are certain places of tension where piggybacking someone else's revelation is not going to get me through. There are certain places of difficulty where if I don't actually know God for myself, the level of difficulty is going to intensify where I'm not going to be able to hide the lack of devotion on a heart level that I really have for who it is that God is in my life. And I'm just not going to be able to fake it until I make it. Because there are beautiful places and seasons of life that will expose authenticity. And what's real will be real, and what's not real will not be real. And it's okay to wrestle. Jesus is wrestling. It's okay at times to have difficulty with the work of the Spirit in your heart trying to bring you to deeper places of real surrender to God's leadership in your life. That is what's called normal. It's not just to assume or imply that this is going to be some super easy skip through the field cakewalk. That's not Bible. What's Bible is through difficulty, suffering, and sorrow. God is going to work all things together for good to those that love him that are called by his name according to his purpose. He's working all things together for what he says is good. Right? Our self-centered Christianity adds a word into that verse. <laughs> God is working all things together for my good. No, he's not. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say at all. Now, it is ultimately for our good, but it's because it's for what he says is good. And he gets to determine what's good because he has a purpose, as Romans 8.28 says. He's working all things together for good to those that love him, that are called according to his name, 
and to his purpose. There is a purpose that God is working out in an ultimate sense. He is superintending the timeline of history. And from the beginning until it climaxes at the end, there is something that God wants and it is consistent. It is beautiful. It is amazing. And at the very end of it all, God will have everything that God wanted that led him to start it all. There is something that he wants. And one of those things that he wants is a people that will love his son more than any other and everything. Now, this might sound elementary to you. This might sound like real basic and super fundamental. But this is Genesis 2 all the way in the beginning. God is overseeing the life of Adam. And as he's overseeing the life of the man in the garden... He determines out of his own desire, it is not good for the man to be alone. When we hear that, we should hear it this way. It is not good for the son of man to be alone. Because the father overseeing the life of Adam, it's an immediate evaluation that reveals eternal implications. It is not good for the son of man to be alone. Listen to what he says to Adam. I will form for you a comparable companion. I will make ready for you a suitable helper. I will fashion a bride for you to rule alongside of you, to joyfully enter into covenant devotion and authority and rule throughout creation together. I will do this. And God puts Adam into a deep sleep, cuts his side, pulls something out of him, and forms a bride, wakes him up from his deep sleep, and then presents to him the bride that he desires and makes ready for him to have that will be the suitable helper, the comparable companion, the bride that the father desires for the son to have. Can you see it? And the father puts the son of man into a deep sleep. He raises him out of his side flows blood and water and the father is using that by the power of his spirit to make ready the bride that he deserves adam got his presentation day jesus is interceding for his he is at the right hand ever living to make intercession John 17, 24, this people, I have to have them. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. God is readying a people that are going to love his son more than everything and any other. A people that will love his son out of delight and not out of duty. I remember sitting at the table that night when we found out that we had lost the baby and having to share the news with the kids who had had dreams and all of these types of things and had really energized the process because we knew that like God had revealed his desires to us and it had given us a sense of of joy and it had given us a sense of really like commissioning knowing that like the word of the Lord Man, like what greater joy is there than to know that Jesus is getting what he's asked you for? There is no greater joy in life than knowing, Lord, if there's something that you want from me, I want you to have it. 
If there's something you want from me, I want you to have it. Ask whatever. Say whatever. Talk to me about whatever. Anything that you want, I want you to have it. Whatever you ask me for. Standing over here at the, at the I wanted to say the coffee shop. I guess it is a coffee shop. Standing over here at the coffee shop just before the gathering, speaking with a brother here. He's like, man, we're five kids, the plan. And I was like, well, the plan is to give God what he wants. And to not have certain spaces and places in the conversation of my life where, Lord, I want you to have your way only applies to certain things. Where I compartmentalize my devotion to God, my willingness. Say what you want to say, do what you want to do. Send me anywhere as long as it's these three places. I'll do anything you want me to do as long as you say this or that. But Lord, anything that you want, I want you to have it. And I remember sitting at the table that night. And my oldest asked the question, she said, Dad, what do we do now? I was like, what do you mean? She said, well, we knew that God spoke to us and that we were supposed to have little Ava Janae. We lost a little girl. It was girl, boy, girl, boy, girl that we lost, then boy. So our kids have been girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. And little Ava Janae. And at the time, my four-year-old had had a dream, and the Lord had spoken to her, handed her a baby sister and spoken to her and gave her the name. And looking at Emma, I said, Emma, what's, what was your baby sister's name in the dream? And she said, Ava Janae. For the Lord gives life, and he is gracious. And now we've lost little Ava Janae. And we're sitting at the table trying to reconcile a moment that is more difficult than I'm able to interpret on my own. And I'd never felt so attacked in my whole life. Broken back, lost baby. We had never lost a child before. I get it. It was a first for us. One time is enough. I'll say that. One time is enough. Never lost a baby. Broken back. I, I had just felt incredibly humbled, exposed attacked. And I remember sitting with the Lord that afternoon in tears, knowing that I was going to have to talk to my kids. And I said, Lord, I don't understand. I'm not walking away from you. I'm not going anywhere. Right? Like, I'm not turning back to the world. Like, we're beyond all that. Right? Like, we're beyond all that. I'm not saying I'm Superman, but, but that conversation is like, it, it's, it's put behind me. But I'm not like always waiting for an opportunity to like exit stage left and run back to the world every time God's not who I want him to be. No, no, no. We're beyond that. And I'm like, Lord, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. But what I've also realized is I don't have to understand you to trust you. Because there's going to be seasons where you don't understand him. But can you still trust him in seasons where you don't understand him? When life is trying to preach to you and scream at you that he is everything other than what he has revealed himself to be to you. When the pressing when the season of Gethsemane and the crushing is real in your life. I mean, I'm talking real. I'm not talking about like fake stuff that you can like easily hide and pretend like it's not actually happening to you. And all of our externals and our images and all of the faking it till we make it and all the ways that we just know how to prop up our lives by other fleshly mechanical things. No, no. I'm talking about something beyond the ability where you can't actually pretend like you're okay. Well, bro, how you doing? Oh, praise God, man, I'm great. No, I'm dying. 
I'm dying. And I love him, but I don't understand what he's doing. I love him, and I'm asking him in a desperate way to give me grace to strengthen my grip as I am clinging to him. Psalm 63, 8. Oh, Lord, my soul doth cling to thee. Man, have you ever had a season where your soul was longing to cling to God? Man, like a Psalm 42, 7 season, as your deep calls unto deep, where the deep things of God and all of what you know he has revealed himself to be to you is on trial where the enemy is doing everything that he possibly can to accuse the character of God to you based off of the circumstantial evidence. A Job 1 season. Man, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Job gets news that his whole world has been wrecked, and it says he tears his clothes, rips his hair out, and falls on his face and worships. His initial response is to worship. Let me just tell you, I've had some devastating things happen where my initial response was not to worship. I got there. I I, I got there. But there were some other things that I did first. There was some complaining. There was some whining. There was some crying. You could call it prayer if you want to. I was talking to God. You can call it prayer if you want to. I guess I was praying. But there are some other things that happen first. And then the crucible in the place of prayer had to soften my heart and remind me of his goodness and bring me into account once again of every way that he has revealed himself to me. You see, there are seasons where like Habakkuk 1, where Habakkuk is crying out, injustice, injustice. And he actually says, Lord, how long are you going to let me lift my voice and continue to seem not to care? Like here I am, prophet of God, wailing in the place of intercession, and you're nowhere to be found. Like you're not answering. Like you're not intervening in the way that I'm praying for. You're not fighting for the things that I think you should be fighting for. Because at times we feel like everything we want, God wants. (laughs) Well, if I want it, that has to mean that God wants it. Right? We know that's not right. And God speaks to Habakkuk in Habakkuk 1. And he says, Habakkuk, look again and behold. Man, how beautiful are these words. Look again and behold. Revelation 5.5. When there's weeping and John is beside himself because the search has gone throughout the heavens and there's none found worthy to open the scrolls and to break the seals. And the angel touches John and he says, don't weep, behold. There is one found worthy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb that was slain. He is the root and the descendant of David. He has overcome. Man, hear that in a fresh way. Don't weep. Behold. And sitting there with my daughter, I said, babe, we have a decision to make. And she was like, what do you mean? 
I don't understand. I said, well, kiddo, um, we love Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we're exempted from real life. Um, as a matter of fact, because we love Jesus, our lives are going to be put on display so that we can be a living demonstration of God's power that is at work in each one of us that believe, producing in us a hope through the place of trials and suffering, right? This is Romans 5. We exult in our tribulations, for we understand that our tribulations are producing perseverance, and perseverance is producing proven character, and proven character is producing hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the Holy Ghost has been shed abroad in our hearts and he never disappoints. This is James 1. Consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. For your trials are producing a work in you that is bringing you to a place of maturity where you are whole and lacking no thing. I don't know about you, but my initial response is not to rejoice in suffering and trials and sorrows. And I said, kiddo, our lives are put on display because we preach things, pray things, say things that God actually wants us to mean to the point where it's so real in us that we live them in the most difficult moments that life has to offer. We say things like, well, we don't suffer the same way that the world does. We don't. Because we do our coping in God. We don't turn to the things of the world when moments of difficulty arise. We turn to God. And when life is pressing us and when the enemy puts the squeeze on us, what God should get is more relationship. Because when relationship is real, more relationship is what should come out whenever the pressures of life are putting the press on you. But typically what happens is we distance ourselves out of a lack of understanding of what is actually happening in any given moment of life. And we say things like, Lord, why are you letting this happen to me? Why are you letting this happen to me? Man, I've been attending the gatherings. I've been praying. I've been fasting. I've been giving as if to assume that a faithfulness in devotion to God is going to exempt us from real life. Amen. <laughs> no. And I said, babe, we have an opportunity right now to determine what type of believer we're actually going to be. We have a decision to make right now. A decision to make right now where we have to decide how we're going to walk with him whenever things that we don't understand start happening to us. I said, because, babe, there's inevitably going to be things in life, seasons of life, where things that we don't understand are going to happen. Things that we don't agree with. Things that we were praying would never actually happen, and then they happen. Things where we would not have fought for the outcome that we're now experiencing. And in the carnage of the consequence, we're having to reconcile God's goodness in a moment that does not feel good. Let me just go ahead and tell you, God is good even when it doesn't feel good. 
God is good even when I don't feel good. This is what Paul is saying in Philippians 4. I've learned the secret. It's Christ in me, and I can do all things because it's him that's actually in me. And Paul recognized even if I am not feeling good. The God that is alive, the God that is inside, the God that is for me and not against me, the God that is always working things together for good is always good. Even in moments where it doesn't feel good, even in moments where I don't think it's good, even in moments where everyone else is telling me, hey, you're not doing that good. He says, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret, and it's him in me, and now I can do all things. Now my devotion does not demand a certain context in order for me to flourish, in order for me to thrive, in order for me to love God and to give him what he wants. God can put me anywhere, and I can go through anything and my love for him because he's the one sustaining it in me so that I can give it back to him. I can do all things because it's him that's actually giving me the strength. He's the one that's actually giving me the strength. And what do I mean by my devotion doesn't demand a context? That means I don't have to have it my way to love him. You don't have to give me a certain political climate in order for me to be in love with Jesus. You don't have to give me a certain income status in order for me to be in love with Jesus. You don't have to give me certain opportunities, certain relationships. You don't have to do anything, as a matter of fact, because what he's done to me by revealing himself to me has secured my devotion to him because he's the one that's giving me all of what I need in order to love him the way that he deserves to be loved. And it's not me, it's him, because he chose me, and I've learned that it's not about who I am to him or what I can do for him or what I can give to him, but it's all about him. And I said, babe, we have to decide. We have to decide what we're going to do in a difficult moment. We have to decide what we're going to be in a moment where it's tough to reconcile his goodness into a situation that does not feel good, sound good. And I said, we have to decide if what's happening to us is going to be able to rob us of the way that he has revealed himself to us. And I said, kiddo, we have a, we have a wonderful opportunity to live like we love him and to give him a yes in the place of pain and suffering. This was Paul's desire. I want to know him. In Philippians 3.10, I want to know him. Where? In the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Romans 8 says, if we suffer with him, will we not also be glorified with him? There's something about it. It's almost like a highlighter. When you crack it, it's supposed to glow. And it's made for dark moments. Because the power that's at work in us, had the rulers of the age known, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, had the rulers of the age known what they were doing when they nailed Jesus to that tree, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. 
it's an incredible, mind-boggling thought to consider that God himself is using all of the enemy's efforts and intentions against you in order to greater authenticate you and fulfill his purposes for you. And the enemy does not recognize that all of his energy against you is actually being used against him in order to greater exalt God in your life, reveal his power, fulfill his purposes, see his word prevail, and accomplish his agenda for you. And the enemy does not realize that the greater that he actually works against you is the greater that God is actually able to be glorified in you. Because had the enemy and the rulers of the age known what they were doing when they nailed Jesus to that tree, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. And he said, babe, we have a decision to make. And I felt like the Lord gave me a, a phrase in the place of prayer that actually, right, it's like Luke 11, 1, teach us how to pray. Man, th th this should be the cry of our hearts in every season, but especially in seasons of difficulty. Because it's easier to pretend like everything's all right when everything is going well. Right? It's easier to pretend like everything's okay whenever we're not being pressed. Right? Sometimes the blessing is in the breaking. Right? Because the Lord understands that without that difficulty, without that tension, sometimes we're not getting up early and praying like we should be. <laughs> we're not staying up late and praying, whether you're an early morning riser or a late night dweller. Right? We're, not, we're not actually like pressing in. We don't have that intentionality until that tension hits our lives. And then the tension hits our lives and it's like, oh snap, in case of emergency, break glass. Right? Like, oh man, now I got to really be about it. Now I got to like actually be serious. Now I actually got to like start getting to it. So sometimes the blessing is in the breaking. But like Luke 11, 1, teach us how to pray. And in that season, man, I was buried. And I said, Lord, you're going to have to teach me how to pray through this. Because honestly, I don't even know how. I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to even approach praying my way through this season. But there is no other way for me. I have determined, right, that Daniel 1.8 resolve. And Daniel resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself with the delicacies of the king's table. That There, there was a resolve. I have resolved to live my life a certain way, and it's going to sound super simple, but I am going to live my life processing it in the face of God. And with everything that happens to me, ups, downs, wins, losses, celebrations, sorrows, trials, moments of intense rejoicing, I am going to process it by staring into the face of God until he does what he needs to do in me so that I can be faithful to him in the season that he's leading me through. So that I can be faithful to him in the season that he's walking me through. Because let's not assume that there are not pitfalls in seasons of luxury and celebration. Because there are. It's not only in seasons of devastation and sorrow where the potential to wander in our hearts is found. And I'm going to process my life in the face of God. 
and I'm going to bring him everything. And I'm going to stare deep, and I'm going to look long. And I'm going to say, Lord, until you do what you have to do in me, where you touch my heart, and your spirit at work in me makes it real to where I can surrender to you over and over and over and over again because we never graduate the place of testing. Trying to figure out where our surrender to God actually is. We never graduate the moment of yielding as if to assume, well, I've surrendered to God enough. Now I can just coast it on out. Right? What does Genesis 22 say? After some time, God came back to Abram to test him. After decades of walking with the Lord, decades of being tested, decades of fulfilling the will of God, decades of seeing wins and losses, after decades, God comes back. And he reveals to him a word that is of his own desire, but it's an invitation to yield to a place in God's leadership that is tough for Abram to bear. The Bible says Abram gets up early the next morning to go and obey the Lord. Man, like may the Lord do something in our hearts where regardless of the cost, there's something so real in the place of my affection for him that it doesn't matter what he asked me for. It doesn't matter what I have to go through. It doesn't matter the circumstantial evidence that you can try to prop up as a way to accuse him in my life. Well, bro, how can you love him the way that you love him after just telling me everything that you've been through? Everything that you're going through right now. How are you still able to rise with joy? How are you still able to offer him a fragrant offering? How are you still able to prevail in the place of worship and prayer and fasting and the word? Why have you not walked away from him? Why have you not buckled under the pressure? Why have you not recanted? Why have you not turned in the place of your devotion? Why? Because he's actually revealed himself to me and he's touched me in a way that I know is real. And it's not just that it's real or that it was real, but he's the one that's actually holding on to me. And man, I'm telling you, if there's anything that is freeing, it's this. As much as I think that I'm the one putting in all the work trying to hold on to God, it's actually God that's holding on to me. Because there are certain seasons where I've wanted him to let me go. But he's been long-suffering. And there are certain seasons where the difficulty and the wrestling in my heart and the hostility that I've had towards him and the anger and the pain and the frustration and the misunderstanding and me attempting to come into agreement with the slandering of his character, these things are real. The testing of our hearts is real. And at times, if I'm not careful, I start to sway 
And at times, if I'm not careful, my heart starts to wander. But he's been so kind to me. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads men to repentance. Man, if you get a greater understanding or a revelation of his kindness to you, (laughs) delight out of a place of love will do what duty would never be able to comprehend. Love will do what religious facades, religious obligation, religious duties, checking the boxes, making sure that I've got all the images right, all the language correct, all of the outside, external, image-based religiosity and all of its hoops and hurdles, love and actually having the affections of your heart conquered to where you have yielded to him in the place of delight because of how delightful he has become to you, delight will bring you to the end of your life and the end of the earth time and time and time again with a smile on your face, with a radiant face where duty would never be able to understand. And as a matter of fact, duty will always despise what delight is running to go and accomplish. And when you begin to understand the depth of his kindness to you. Man, I'm telling you, in moments where I've been hostile and rebellious in my own heart, even while I've kept all the images and the externals propped up right. (laughs) You see, we praise God for Jonah, right? Because Jonah, Jonah goes and shakes the city. Praise God. Jonah goes with the word of the Lord. Revival breaks out. It's actually amazing. Men, women, children, and animals are fasting. Let me just tell you, you know God is moving when your cat is on the fast. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? When the dog is on the fast too, like, yo, God is doing something. Like there's an extraordinary move of the spirit. Fluffy's fasting. Sparky's fasting. Jonah shakes the city. Revival breaks out. It's amazing. A whole city turns to God. 40 years of delayed judgment because of their turning to the word of the Lord released through the life of Jonah. Awesome. The book of Jonah closes out with Jonah's anger towards the Lord. I knew that you would be yourself. That's why I didn't want to go. Because they don't deserve it. And I knew that if I went, that that's exactly what you were going to do. And that's why I didn't want to go. And the book ends with Jonah wrestling on a heart level with God. Public, everybody sees Jonah shaking a city. Private, what God sees is his hostility and his lack of desire to actually yield to what it is that God was asking him for. I did it because I was tired of getting in trouble. That's duty. I did it because my disobedience was now creating issues for other people. That's duty. That's religious obligation. And at times, we can have everything out here looking right. But on a heart level, 
And I need the reminder of his kindness to me. That even in my seasons of difficulty, even in my seasons of wrestling, even in my seasons where it was tough for me to yield to his leadership because I wanted my own way, because I thought I knew better, because the, the tension of what I was having to go through, I began to actually believe the accusation of his character, and I sided with all of the assault that was being testified against him rather than reminding my heart of how good he's been to me. It's the Genesis 3 issue all over again. What did God actually say to you? No, it's because he's holding out on you. There's the accusation of his character in seasons of difficulty. And let me just tell you, this sounds amazing when it's happening this way. But there are different, unique things in all of our lives that begin to test the boundaries of God's goodness to us. Man, you let me get sick for five or six or seven days in a row, and all hell breaks loose. Like, God, where are you? I'm coughing and it's day seven again. Lord, do you even heal anybody? Is it real? Yo, and it's hilarious because it actually happens. Like, where is he? Why is he not being good to you? Why hasn't he healed you? You've seen blind eyes open, deaf ears open, people get up out of wheelchairs and dance. Where is he? Why is he not doing it for you? Why is he not touching you? Why is he allowing you to go through this pain, this suffering, this season of torment, this sorrow? How is he good if he's letting something that's not good seem to prevail in your life? And if we're not careful, we begin to side. And, and initially, initially, right, we do pretty well. But the longer something stretches out. the longer something lasts, right? Because it's actually the mercy of the Lord to develop perseverance in us by his spirit, right? This is Romans 5, 3 again. We exalt in tribulations, why? Because tribulations develop perseverance. And perseverance produces proven character. What does that mean? It's that 1 Timothy 3 where Paul's charged to Timothy, Anyone who desires to serve must first be tested. What does tested mean? We have to watch you live. We have to see how you handle life. We have to watch you go through the fire. We have to see what you actually turn into whenever you get pressed, whenever you get pushed, whenever things are not going in your favor, whenever sorrow and suffering and trials seem to abound. Who are you when you have to step into the furnace? We have to see what your life looks like when you actually get tested and holding on to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That, through persevering, begins to develop actual character. Actual character that's not built on fluff and stuff. Actual character that's not just built on Christian merch and a new language. Actual character that's just not social media memes. But it's grit 
It's resolve. It's substance and stature that only the Spirit can give to those that have been branded by God's kindness through seasons of difficulty where you've chosen to love him and yield to him and give him a yes out of the place of your pain because the alternative of walking away from him is not something that you could conceive. And I don't know what's happening to me, but I can't walk away from you. And I don't agree with the way that things are going, but I can't deny you. And Lord, I don't understand you, but I trust you and I will love you here. And regardless of what may come, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is going to be my anthem. It's going to be my cry. Through ups and downs and wins and losses, ins and outs, and every turn that life may try to bring my way. Because I'm not after the material things or the rewards of this life. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And real stature, which is what we would consider to be proven character, is something that the Spirit has to actually make real in us. And unless it is tested, it can only be assumed. It can only be assumed. And confessions are amazing. Right? Confessions are amazing. But I tend to think uh, the best about myself. Right? And it's why... Galatians 5, and the work of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. It's why these things require other people and circumstances in order to authenticate. What I mean by that is there has to be a relational touch point in order for there to be a demonstration of the real transformation that's happened to me. Because until I have an opportunity to prove it through being tested. The testing comes to authenticate you, not to discredit you. And if we ever get a shift in perspective about testing and his kindness, that he's not leading me into a season in order to shame me, in order to derail me, guilt me, walk away from me. Peter, I'm praying for you. To know the Lord's kindness and his intercession for you through moments, times, and seasons of difficulty is world-rocking. To know I'm praying for you. That though the enemy would love nothing more than to expose you and discredit for you, I'm praying for you that what I've actually done in you would rise to the occasion. I'm praying for you that though you might not understand what it is that I'm doing, though it might be difficult to interpret my leadership, though the enemy wants to accuse me and all of my goodness to you through the circumstantial evidence being provided to you, I am praying for you that your faith would not fail you. And I'm holding on to you because you're going to rise on the other side and you're going to be a strength to your brothers and your sisters. I just felt in my heart as I was praying for us being together, tonight specifically, that the Lord wanted to touch our hearts afresh and bring us into a deeper place in the experience of his love for us so that being exposed again to his goodness and his kindness it would give us a greater resolve to be able to continue journeying through the wrestling of his leadership. 
Because I feel as if, now this is going to sound so general and I don't even mean it that way, that there are some of us that in this season are wrestling with incredibly difficult words from the Lord. And I don't say that in some general way as if to assume like, hey, somebody in the room has financial problems. Like, no, that's not at all what I'm, I really felt in my heart because I had the picture of Matthew 26, Jesus wrestling in the garden. And at the end of the wrestling match, it's not my will, your will be done. Where it's not that you don't know what the Lord is saying, you know what the Lord is saying. But you just need him to touch you once again and to give you great grace in the place of your obedience. Those that love me are those that obey me. John 14, 15. We can gauge love by obedience because obedience is not a duty issue, it's a love issue. And if we're having trouble obeying, we're probably having difficulty in the place of being loved. Notice I didn't say you loving him because it's as I have loved you. Now you're able to actually love because we don't get to determine the definition for love. He does. And once he gives it to us, he gives us grace to give it back to him. And I just felt in my heart as if there were some of us that were wrestling through difficult seasons. As a matter of fact, as I was praying, I saw traumatic experiences, things in our history that have been difficult to reconcile Um, Things that if we would be honest, that man, if somebody were to put their finger on it, it would just erupt again like an open wound. Like we've done a good job trying to cover it up, but it hasn't actually been healed. We've found man-made ways in order to deal or to cope with our pain. Hey, listen to me. The world has a buffet of options in order to deal with pain, tragedy, misunderstanding. But we do our coping in God. And we unravel in the presence of God. And if I'm going to break down anywhere, I'm going to break down in presence. Right? That's where I'm going to break down. I'm going to break down in presence. I'm not going to create distance. I'm not going to run from him when times get hard. I'm not going to blame him and accuse him. I'm not going to demand of him that he fix things or else I'm going to hold my obedience hostage. Right? Some of us are holding our affection and our obedience hostage because we're putting a demand on the Lord that he give us a certain context. And I just felt as if the Lord wanted to baptize some of us afresh, again, in the experience of his love. Because 1 John 4 tells us that when perfect love is accomplishing its agenda, it gives the eviction notice to fear. And even as it was when the doctor told me on that day, I'm going to need you to feel this so that you can actually heal from this. Let me just, I'll submit it to you or suggest it this way. The Holy Spirit is not empowering suppression. The Holy Ghost is empowering transformation. And it's difficult to heal what we continue to hide. Sometimes we actually have to cast thy burdens upon the Lord. Sometimes we actually have to be raw and honest. Let me me say it this way. God is more secure than you want him to be. He's way more secure than you want him to be. We are filled with insecurities. And insecurities at times are so unstable that our actions are motivated 
by how they will affect or influence other people. And at times, we don't say something because, well, well, I know if I say that, then so-and-so, they're going to get angry. Or if I tell them what I really think their shirt looks like, then, you know, they're going to get offended and, you know, yada, yada, yada. God is way more secure than we understand and way more secure than we want him to be. God is so secure, he can handle your hostility. He can handle all of your insecurity. He can handle all of your fears. He can handle all of your inaccurate perceptions about who he is and what he's doing. More than 7 billion people on the face of the planet right now. And God is beautifully and consistently being himself even with more than 7 billion opinions about who he is. Some of us can't handle a negative comment on social media. We can't handle one text message that we misinterpret. God is handling more than 7 billion opinions at the same time and a majority of them that are inaccurate. He is so secure that it is unnerving for us because at times I want him to respond to my frustration. Where are you? And what are you doing? And why are you not being who I want you to be? Okay, hold on. I'm going to rush in and be who you want me to be. No, no. That would make you God and would make him subservient to you. God is not insecure. He is secure. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is beautifully, consistently himself. And his solution to the majority of the woes of our life is not to rush in and give us what we think we want or need by the voice of our demands through the pressure that we apply. His solution is to draw near and to reveal himself again. Because the best thing that he can do for you is show himself to you again. The best thing that he can do for you is to reveal himself to you again. And so I believe that the Lord wants to reveal himself to us afresh. And those of us, man, I'm telling you, listen, uh, I, I do want to pray. Um, yeah, we'll just see how things go. Um, those of us that have painful experiences in life, Again, I don't want this to sound as generic as it does. I'm trying my best to communicate what it is I feel I saw. Those of us that have traumatic or painful experiences in life, where the way that we have chosen to deal with our lack of interpretation, because let me, let me say it this way, you can only continue to walk faithfully for so long if you find a way to reconcile difficulty into your devotion. Because there will come a moment where what you are not able to reconcile, it will get very difficult to continue in the place of devotion. Because it will either get plastic, it will get all fake, because you know what you should do, but because you don't want to do it, you have to do it because you know too much to not do it. I know too much to not do it, but I don't want to do it because I don't have an answer for this. And because I don't have an answer for this, my heart's not in it. 
because my heart is actually feeling this way, but because I don't want to actually voice that to God because I feel like he's not going to be able to handle it if I tell him how I'm really feeling. I'm going to continue on this way, even though he knows what's really going on on the inside. On the outside, I'm going to continue in mechanics. But I don't want mechanical. I want raw, honest, intimate fellowship. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. And I believe the Lord wants to give grace to raise some of us from the dead in the place of our devotion. Where we've just been going through the motions. We've just been keeping up the outside. We know too much to not do what we're doing. But we don't want to do any more than the minimum of what we've been doing. And that's because there's been a level of suffering and sorrow that I've not been able to reconcile. The Lord wants to conform you more than at times he's willing to inform you. And we want answers, but God wants intimacy. We want explanations, and God is looking for lovers. And can you love him through difficult seasons where you may not get the answers that you want? According to the what According to the where, according to the when, it's the why. At the end of Job's life, and then I'm going to ask everybody to stand. At the end of Job's life, right, Job is in his feelings. And it's amazing because Job's life is a depiction of the human experience. Job is not referenced to a time people or a people group because Job is meant to be an unveiling of the situation of humanity. Having to trust the love and the leadership of a God who says he's good when all of our world begins to shake. Job's life is a depiction of the Psalm 2 reality when the raging of the nations begins to happen and the assault on those who love God and the choice of his son as the ruler of the universe. The Psalm 45-7 company who love what he loves and hates what he hates. Who are smeared with the oil of gladness and exalted above their contemporaries. Job's life is a depiction, it's an unveiling of the, the situation of humanity, of the human experience. Wrestling with God's leadership through the place of difficulty. This is what Job's life is meant to give us as a picture. And towards the end of Job's life, he's in his feelings. And he says, boy, I wish God were here. Because I tell you what, if God were here, I would put him on the stand and I would accuse him to his face like a man. Really? That's what you would do? That's what you think so? And God comes at the end because he's always faithful to come near. He's always faithful to unveil himself again. He's always faithful to reveal his goodness and his kindness, even through our seasons of hostility and lack of real understanding. And God comes and he says, Job, get up. And stand up on your feet. And I'm going to question you to your face like a man. 
And I, I know we understand the, the, the situation that happens. Job, where were you when I hung the stars in their place? Where were you when I told the cheetah how fast it could run? Where were you when I created the edge of the water line and told the waves where their boundaries were? Job, where, where, you, where were you? you? You weren't around, were you? No, 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 Job, you weren't anywhere around. I, I know what I'm doing. And what we find at the end is that Job doesn't actually get an explanation. Job never gets an explanation. Uh, yeah, I get it. It sounds great. He gets double for his trouble. Right? Double for your trouble doesn't really fix it. <laughs> it's not like chicken nuggets. It's not like if I have five, right, and, like, and you eat the five nuggets that I have, and then you just give me back ten, like you just replace the nuggets. It's nugget for nugget. No, no. Job lost his whole family. You just can't replace certain things. <laughs> Giving me another one is not the same as what I've lost, right? So, so don't give me the double for your trouble stuff, right, as if to just gloss it over, as if it's supposed to just make everything better. No, it actually doesn't make everything better. But Job doesn't get an explanation. He just gets another revelation. <laughs> and man, at times, our heart thinks that what it needs is an explanation, you have to tell me why. You have to inform me. But God is more interested in conforming you at times than he is informing you. And this is part of the tension on this side of life. We have the privilege to offer him a yes through difficulty and pain and hardship that we will not be privileged to in the age to come. For Revelation 21, 3 and 4, there is coming a day when God will come and he will abide in the midst of his people. He will right every wrong. He will wipe every teary eye dry. And it will be said in those days that God is among them and he is their God and they are his people. And there will be joy unlike anything except by the power of the spirit at work in us now that we are able to know. And on this side of life, we are able to love him through suffering, through pain, through misunderstanding, through difficulty. And I just feel as if the Lord wants to give a revelation of himself. And so let's do this. I'm going I'm to ask everybody to stand up. I'm going to wait just a moment or so. I really, really sense the sweeping over of the spirit. Yeah, if you feel a tug on your heart tonight from the Lord, I'm just going to ask you to respond and to join me up here, to step out from where you are and, and come, come this way. I'd love to lay hands on anybody that's just asking for a greater grace to be able to love him. And like a greater grace, like, Lord, if you would touch my heart in a greater way to love you the way that I know you deserve to be loved, and I want you to have from me what it is that you're longing for. Man, as you get up here, if you want to kneel, if you want to sit, if you want to stand, I'm really going to ask the Lord for power to crack the well of our affection. And it's got to be a work of the Spirit.
Come on, we're just going to tarry for a moment. We're just going to cry out to God together. Come on, for those of you that have come, just, just offer your affection in, in the way that you know how. Lord, here's my heart. Here's where I really am. Man, I want to be raw. I want to be open. Lord, it's tough, but I know you're kind. Things are hard, but I know you're good. I'm wrestling with your leadership. I don't know why. I don't know where. Yeah, Holy Spirit, mark our hearts tonight with love for Jesus. We're asking you for a fresh baptism. A fresh baptism of love and joy and delight and the ease and the help of your presence. As David writes, man, to find the help of your presence. And bring us out of duty. Bring us out of religious obligation. Bring us out of the plasticity of Christianity. Lord, we want what's real. We want what's ready, what's authentic. Thank you, Holy Ghost, for real power. We want to burn, 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 burn. We want to burn. And they say to her, who is this beloved of yours that makes you act so wild and so crazy? Tell us about him. Why? Why is he worthy to be pursued this way? She says he's radiant. <laughs> he's the chiefest among 10,000. He eclipses them all. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? There's none like him. Woo, Jesus. Give her greater grace. Greater grace to be untamed as they come. There is no box. Thank you, Lord, for redefining normal. For Lord, you reserve the right to say what's normal.